Okay, Bible reading from Matthew 21, verses 1 to 11. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there, and with, with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet, Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Good morning. Good morning. Okay. Ooh. I'm very sorry, my father has an amazing voice. It amplifies really well, it records really well, and he did not give me that gift. <laughs> I have the voice of my mother's side of the family, which is this. <laughs> I hope you've had a week walking with Jesus. It, it's, been, it's been easier for me because I've been spending time with some really amazing people, and I got to meet a whole lot of new people I, I had a great week. Um, I met another Twibal. Um, you'd be surprised. Like, it wasn't hard to find him because the similarities were stark there. Today's Palm Sunday. And other faiths, other faith traditions, they make little palm crosses like this one. So I thought today that the children and the young at heart, because there's like five children here today, is there? There's not many of you that the young at heart could, could make these while I'm speaking. So down in front of me here, and <laughs> there we go, Vonnie's got a whole bag of tricks back there as well. Um, there's palm fronds down here, and I think Vonnie's got some paper back there. So if you want, you can go sit next to Vonnie because she knows how to do it, or if your parents know how to do it, or another adult knows how to do it, sit with them. And I want you to make as many as you can, though. So adults, it might be good if you can help out with this. I want, I want lots of these by the end of the service. <laughs> There's a lot of ways to do it. If you know how to do it a certain way, it doesn't matter. It just needs to look like a cross at the end. Because historically, we Baptists, we, we thought we were very clever. We thought we were very clever by getting rid of all the traditions that other people have held. We, we tried to get rid of these traditions. <laughs> There's lots of kids. Look at that. Hey, hey, all, just take all of those and put them in the middle of the, the room over there. Just put them in the middle of the room over there. Thanks, buddy. Sorry, people online, I don't know how to get the palm fronds to you. If you've got them in a garden, run out and get a palm frond now. <laughs> Just rip a couple off the, the palm. Okay. 
Baptists tried to get rid of all the traditions because they felt that it, it, it was just going through the motions. And I get it. I don't, want, I don't want to have a faith that is merely doing things because that's the way it was done before. Now, don't misunderstand me. I think that traditions for tradition's sake is hollow and empty. But we can also throw the baby out with the bathwater. Oh, good. Someone's doing that. Thank you. <laughs> oh, man. Traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. But tradition is the living faith of the dead. I'll say that one again. Traditionalism... Oh, Brendan, is there a slide? Traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. But tradition is the living faith of the dead. Tradition can link us to those who have gone before us. Do you want me to change microphones? Is that going to help at all? It doesn't sound very nice. I'm sorry for my voice. (laughs) This is what God gave me. (laughs) Baptists pride ourselves or themselves on being traditionally untraditional. And when I went through the process of registration with QB, we discussed this. And there was, there was much support in the room for not following traditions because that could lead to a dead faith. Most of the pastors in the room were saying things like, you should, have, you should not have to do, sorry, you should not have to do the same thing each week. It will lose meaning. So we won't do communion every week because we want it to be special when we take it and not just take it every week. Now, I don't know if you know this about me, but I'm a little bit cheeky. So I I raised my hand, and and they said yes. And I said, do you feel the same way about the offering? (laughs) Suddenly, suddenly the tone of the room changed. And there was a reason to do something every week, even if you didn't hold the meaning to it. Um, which I think the sad thing is what they were saying was we don't care if people give their offerings devoid of meaning and understanding what they're doing as long as they give us their money I think that's atrocious but and it reveals to us something that I want to talk about today we all have blind spots in what we believe we contradict ourselves and we don't even recognise it often We hold inconsistencies because to be consistent would require me to change my attitude or my behaviour. And like the pastors who are vehemently against one tradition, like taking communion every week, yet blindly accept others like like making sure the offering is taken up, we have inconsistencies in our belief. We have a heart problem. G.K. Chesterton, you probably know this quote, but I'm going to give it to you today anyway. In his characteristic and wit and piercing clarity, wrote to a newspaper, probably the Times, with the quip, Dear Sir, regarding your question, what's wrong with the world? I am. Yours truly, G.K. Chesterton. In regard to your question, what's wrong with the world? I am. Yours truly, G.K. Chesterton. Chesterton could just cut to the heart succinctly, couldn't he? When we're honest, we have to admit that we contribute to the problem of what's wrong with this world. 
I don't mean we're vindictively trying to destroy the world, but in little ways, our selfishness, our pride, causes us damage, both individually and collectively. What's wrong with the world? We are. And this is a hard teaching. It's a heart problem. It goes to the core of our being. And the solution is not an exercise of forceful authoritarian power, of someone saying, stop it, because that doesn't change our hearts. Authoritarian power saying, stop it, is the way of the world. And what does this have to do with Palm Sunday? So have your Bibles open to Matthew 21, and we'll have a look at Jesus' attitude towards worldly power structures and how he exercised his power. Matthew has just spent the first 20-ish chapters of his, his book recounting the story of Jesus from birth to his teaching ministry. That's like 33 years-ish there, in, in 20 chapters. And now Matthew slows right down, and he spends nine chapters, about nine and a half chapters, on one week of Jesus' life. So you can see the importance that Matthew places on this part of the story. 20 chapters for 33 years, nine and a half chapters for one week. Jesus has just said to his disciples, we are going to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law and they will condemn him to death. Cheery message. Jesus then gives his disciples these instructions. Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They bought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from trees and spread them out on the road. Palms, Palm Sunday, getting the link there. The crowds that went ahead of him and those who followed shouted, Hosanna, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowd answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. What must the disciples be thinking? People are singing and dancing. Crowds are treating Jesus as a king, but not just any king. Hosanna to the son of David. They believe this to be the long-awaited Messiah. All that stuff about going up to Jerusalem where dying and dying a horrible death, <laughs> suddenly that's gone. This is what it's about. Look at the power Jesus will have as king. He will make things right. But something else is going on here. And Matthew gives us a clue, and those who have been following on would notice I skipped verse 4. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And this is, I love Matthew, but we have to know something about Matthew. When he quotes the the prophets, he sends us on a rabbit hole. He sends us down the rabbit hole and we have to go chasing. Because Matthew expects you and me to know the prophets 
as well as Brendan and I know Star Wars quotes. So when, when you say a Star Wars quote, Brendan and I know what you're talking about, where it comes from in the context. Matthew expects you to know where that comes from and the context of that quote. So without looking at the notes in your Bible, where's that from, guys? You don't know. Zechariah, yeah. <laughs> I'm really disappointed though, you cheated. So. <laughs> so Matthew is quoting from Zechariah 9. So if you want to follow along, obviously turn to Zechariah, which is in the book of the 12, which is towards the end of the Old Testament. But we'll come back to Matthew, so keep your finger in the, the Matthew bit as well. Matthew, uh, Zechariah 9, 9 says... Look, your king will come to you. He is righteous and victorious, lowly and riding upon a donkey, the foal of a donkey. But Matthew is writing to an audience that know the context and the entire story that Zechariah is talking about. So for us to understand it, we need to go back to that story and refresh it. Zechariah is giving the message, this message after Israel has been in exile. They have begun returning from exile just as God had promised. They were returning to their land, but they were still waiting for their Messiah. Zechariah is speaking judgment to power. The nations surrounding Jerusalem were known for their military power. In Zechariah 9, 1-8, he is warning the surrounding nations. Tyre was known for its strength. Zechariah tells God's people that God is going to strike down or destroy their army destroy the very thing that symbolized their strength. The Philistine army of Tyre, the Philistine neighbors of Tyre would writhe in agony and their hope would wither. The Philistines were renowned for their military force, iron weapons and chariots. They were the epitome of strength, of worldly power. God says through Zechariah, I will put an end to the pride of the Philistines. And Zechariah then turns to Israel and says, Look, rejoice, your king is coming. What sort of king is coming? He must be so powerful because he's going to be the king that's going to overpower these powers. How strong, how willing to just do what it takes to overcome these evil powers of the nations. This language is pointing to Davidic, the Davidic favor. The, yeah. Try again. <laughs> this language is pointing to the Davidic saviour they have been waiting for. This is Zechariah's time, looking to the Davidic saviour they have been waiting for. The king is righteous because everybody knows that the, the son of David needs to be righteous. That's one of the key characteristics of David, righteousness. You can feel the anticipation. Yes, righteous. But how powerful is he? The king is saved Hang on. It's a strange thing to say. This is often translated in your Bibles as victorious. But it's probably referring to the suffering David tradition found in the Psalms and the suffering servant songs in Isaiah. <laughs> so hold on. Suffering king? Okay, that's a bit strange. But how powerful is he? Humble, lowly, or afflicted? Wait, what? Riding on a donkey. I'm sorry. Where's the war horse? Where's the fanfare? 
Again, Zechariah is referring to the portrait of David. There's a story of David returning to Jerusalem on a donkey after he stopped his son Absalom's revolt. David had to flee Jerusalem on foot and someone gives him a donkey and he spends the rest of the time riding on a donkey and returns on a donkey. You can read about it for yourself in 2 Samuel 15. This whole story is about David being afflicted, humiliated and almost defeated before God saved him. Do you see it? David was afflicted, he was made lowly, he was saved. Zechariah is using the same language about the king to come. The coming king will rely on God's power, not his own. Turn back with me to Matthew, and Jesus is entering Jerusalem. Rome is now known for its military strength and, and to enforce its power. When a king entered the city, the people would go out to meet him and walk into the city in procession with him. The powerful king would have symbols of his might, war horses, soldiers, chariots. And we see Jesus entering on a donkey, like David. He is lowly, humble, like David. He is relying on God's power, not his own, like David, not man's power. But many people recognized these signs and came out to see the coming king, saying, Hosanna, save us, son of David. The excitement is palpable. The people believe that Jesus is the Davidic king. Matthew is painting the portrait of Jesus as the Messiah, the Savior, the king, but a very different kind of king. God has ultimate power and could smite the enemies with ease. Instead, in order that all humanity could be saved, he came as a suffering servant who saves through the work on the cross. The people of Jerusalem had expectations of that king coming in power to vanquish their enemies. Jesus did not conform to this expectation. And the events that occurred in the days after this story challenge the disciples' understanding of the Messiah. And let's be honest, they challenge our understanding of the Messiah as well. Jesus is the king, but he didn't do the things people expected. He did not wield any worldly power. He didn't enforce decrees from top-down authoritarian power structures like all the other kings of the world. Our problem is a heart problem. And Jesus came with the only solution that could fix our hardened human hearts. He was lowly, he was humble, and the salvation of the world came through his death on a cross. Who here has accepted Jesus as their Lord and Saviour? You don't have to put your hand up, but think about the answer. How many of us have fallen into the trap of saying, of course, I've accepted Jesus as my Lord and Saviour? I did it when I was seven years old. Without thinking what it means that he is your Lord and Saviour. Or worse, how many of us have said these words while living lives that reflect the ways of this world and not the way of the humble, lowly, afflicted Christ? 
How many of us strive to be on the top of power structures or wish for Christians to be at the top of the the power structures so that they can enforce Christian values from above? (laughs) Yes. It doesn't work that way. Because Jesus did not do that. Could Jesus have done that? Absolutely. When the Apostle Paul... So the Apostle Paul is charged with the task of taking Jesus' teaching and writing it down and collating it and putting it in a way that we can understand. He wrote it down for those who came after Jesus. That's, that's us. <laughs> he encouraged his readers. And this is in Philippians 2. Let Christ himself be your example as to what your attitude should be. For he who had always been God by nature did not cling to his prerogatives as God's equal, but stripped himself of all privilege by consenting to be a slave by nature and being born as a mortal man. And having become man, he humbled himself by living, by living a life of utter obedience, even to the extent of dying. And the death that he died was a death of a common criminal. Jesus has shown us the way. He lived the way. He is the way. And yet it seems that we try everything else except for the way that he set down for us to follow. Our hearts cry, it's not fair. And that's the problem. It's our heart's problem. Can you hear the echoes of Zechariah and Matthew in Paul's teaching? Humility is the way. Our heart problem can only be solved by being a people who trust God's power rather than trying to grasp whatever worldly power we can. We need to be able to admit like Chesterton, Dear Sir, regarding your question, what is wrong with the world? I am. That's what this week is about. We start today remembering Jesus coming in as the King, the Son of David, the Messiah. And we close the week with the death of the Son of God on a cross. I'm going to give you some homework. So up on the screen, let's put the next slide up now while I'm talking. If you're coming to the Passover on Friday night, consider this required readings. If you're not coming to the Passover on Friday night, consider this required readings. (laughs) Consider it an invitation to hear what God is saying throughout this week. And I'll put it on Facebook where people have got their phones out taking photos. Good job. There's a lot of them. One day, Jesus will return. And we will go out to join that procession as he enters the world as the rightful king. In the meantime, he has given us the task of being his hands and feet to a dying world. Humbly pointing to him as the true king. I want to close with Jesus' own words on how we are to follow him. So ask the question, Jesus, how are we to follow you? Then he called his disciples and the people around him and said to them, if anyone wants to follow in my footsteps, he must give up all right to himself. Take up his cross and follow me. The man who tries to save his life will lose it. It is a man who loses his life for my sake and the gospel who will save it. What good can it do to a man to gain the whole world at the price of his own soul?
What can a man offer to buy back his soul once he has lost it? That's from Mark 8. Now, kids, during this last song, and adults, if you've made those little crosses, I hope there's a few extra ones, because I want you to, to stop and pray and ask God, who would you like me to give this to? If you've got more than one, you can keep one for yourself. But I want you to give the cross to somebody else. And if you receive a cross, I want you to put that cross in your Bible or put it on your fridge And every time you look at it, remember what sort of king we follow. Humble, lowly, and afflicted. Let me pray, and we'll conclude in the last song. Father, we lay our lives at the foot of the cross as we follow you. Help us to rely on your strength and not our own. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.